Welcome to the UM's Connected Podcast, a resource offering spiritual formation in the Wesleyan tradition through a metaverse community. I'm your host, Steve Harper. We continue looking at the formative flow of communal Wesleyan formation. We began some weeks ago now with connecting and pointing to that initial stage of belonging to a community where life could be celebrated and faith could be nurtured. Then we did a little series on believing, which was our way of saying that when you entered into Methodist formation, you entered into vital faith, where you could say with the apostles, this we believe, and could celebrate your life in Christ. Now we're in a series on behaving, on living our faith, on social holiness. We've been looking at that in relationship to Richard Foster's spiritual formation paradigm, which he calls vision, intention, and means. We've looked at the visionary aspect of living our faith and the intentional aspect of living our faith. Today, we turn to the means of living our faith. I've already mentioned this in a previous episode, It's what some Wesleyan scholars have referred to as John Wesley's three R's. Now, I want to make clear that Wesley never used a three R paradigm. It's the way that we've organized uh, his uh, living faith theology. It's in relationship to timely actions. That is, actions that were timely in the 18th century that incorporated and and incarnated biblical principles. Uh, Wesley believed that that if you believed something, uh, you would behave it in some way or other. The means of living faith are the ways in which we sustain the vision which we've been given and which we talked about a couple of weeks ago in this series. So I return today to bring this, uh, this episode uh, to a conclusion, this little series to a conclusion, the vision, the intention, and the means, by revisiting Wesley's three R's. The first was to reach the marginalized. Now, Wesley said reaching the lost. I say reaching the marginalized because it's clear that when Wesley was referring to the lost, he was He was thinking about those, as we might say, who had dropped off the radar screen, the invisible, the uh, uncared for people of his day. He wasn't just talking about that in a soul sense. He was talking about that in a societal sense as well. Uh, People uh, for whom the society of his day uh, were no longer concerned about or caring for to any great extent. So, We would say it today, reaching the marginalized. He did this in two ways. Well, he did it in many ways, but two that I want to mention in the episode today. First is he located them. Wesley was proactive. He operated with a go-to mentality, not a come-to mentality. Now, there were a lot of meetings in Methodism that people went to. But the missiological impetus, the living faith motivation, was 
to go to to locate those marginalized, invisible, forgotten others and relate to them. So he would go to the places in uh, cities and rural areas where those people lived or worked. When I went to London for the first time in the 1970s, I went, of course, to Wesley's Chapel. In fact, I stayed there uh, for a couple of weeks during my sojourn in England. Uh, I discovered while I was there that Wesley chose the East End. He chose that part of London uh, to locate the Methodist movement and to have the foundry there, later Wesley's Chapel, because that's where, in the city of London, many of the marginalized people of his day were living. Who were these people? Well, they were economically deprived, of course, but they were also uh, socially deprived and educationally deprived. And, and so that's the second thing that I noted uh, years ago uh, when I was in England, that Wesley not only located the marginalized, he educated the marginalized. This was particularly true uh, of women. Women were often set aside in the educational system, given minimal education, and Wesley believed that was wrong. I suspect he probably got that sentiment from his mother, Susanna, and his sisters, perhaps, as well. But what we see is that in this means of living faith, you locate the marginalized and you educate the marginalized. Now, with respect to education, I want to remind you that this was whole life formation. Uh, he didn't just educate them in what we might call uh, spiritual practices or religious beliefs. Uh, he taught them how to read. Uh, he uh, educated them in, uh, in skills so that they could begin to earn a living or have a trade. Wesley believed that salvation was wholeness. And wherever people were not whole in body, mind, or spirit, he wanted to reach them. He wanted to form them. You can't think about this means of reaching the marginalized without returning to Scripture in that word anawim in Hebrew. Sometimes it's translated the poor or the needy or the oppressed. Once you, you see it, particularly in the Old Testament, it just jumps out at you in verse after verse after verse. The anawim. The little ones, little not in terms of status, but little in, in terms of how little they were cared for, how little their needs were taken into account. And the early Methodist movement reversed that and said that it's in the little things, in the little ones, where we see the grace of God at work. And it's in the little ones, the marginalized, the poor, needy, the oppressed, the forgotten, that we find our connections. Theodore Jennings Jr., who died just a couple of years ago, is well known in Wesleyan theological circles for his work on the poor. 
I want to mention his book today, Good News to the Poor. Say that title again, Good News to the Poor. Uh, Ted Jennings spent his lifetime um, exploring the Wesleyan expressions of compassion, uh, of ministries to the poor. And Ted taught in places and worked and served in places where people were marginalized. He wrote not only as a Wesleyan scholar, but he wrote as a Wesleyan disciple of Jesus Christ who understood that reaching the marginalized is at the heart of the gospel, just as the Wesleys did. So living faith, the means of living faith, was expressed in reaching the marginalized. It was also expressed in renewing the church. Wesley understood that concept of the little church in the big church, the ecclesiola in ecclesia. The church uh, is, is massive in its uh, makeup. It's, it's uh, worldwide in its population. It's uh, complex in its institution. And so Wesley believed that, that it was God's will for there to be in the body of Christ those cells, if you will, those organs that would be constantly at work renewing and restoring health and vitality to the church. He saw Methodism as one of those renewal movements. He put it in the historical line of succession with movements that went all the way back, really, to the book of Acts and moved forward through time through such groups as the early church, mothers and fathers, the Benedictine uh, movement and tradition and all of the monastic uh, renewal that ensued. He, he, he saw it in movements like the Franciscans, uh, he saw it in the Brethren of the Common Life, uh, saw it in the Thomas Akempis. Uh, you could just name person and group after uh, one after another that as part of their missiology uh, were intent on doing all that they could do to ensure that the church was healthy and strong. Here, I think, John Wesley was drawing on the principles of Jesus when he said in the Sermon on the Mount to his hearers, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are life-giving metaphors. These are penetrating metaphors. Salt penetrates meat to make it flavorful. Light penetrates darkness so that people don't have to stumble around and hurt themselves. Wesley wanted the church to be that for people. Um, I was blessed to study in my theological education with Dr. Thomas Carruth, Dr. Tom, as we called him and he liked to be called, often said to us in class, the great indictment of the church is that people come hurting and leave hurting.
Dr. Tom was was intent on on church being more than uh, sitting in the premises or even standing on the promises, but he believed that that the church really was a place of nourishment and healing and recovery and all of the words uh, that we have used in our generation to talk about a church that understands that it's been put into the world to restore and to renew. So, while Wesley was faithful, referring to himself as a Church of England man, and doing so uh, uh, genuinely, he also understood that the church, because it's made up of people, the church is people, because it's made up of people like you and like me, we are constantly in need of um, recovering our senses, restoring our spirit, um, reestablishing our priorities. So part of the means of living faith is renewing the church. Now, let's go back and show how that in the middle, that renewing the church in that number two of three, would go back because a renewed church would reach the marginalized. A renewed church would have eyes to see and ears to hear, would be able to identify and relate with and care for the anawim, the poor and the needy. See, this is why church renewal is not just a self-serving enterprise. Um, We are formed for life in Christ for the sake of others. Dr. Robert Mulholland, in his excellent book on spiritual formation entitled Invitation to a Journey, defines spiritual formation that way. The life of Christ in us for the sake of others. So even when we talk about the renewal of the church, we're talking about it not only in an inwardly formative sense, but we're talking about it in an outwardly missional sense as well. And that brings us to the third dimension of living faith, the means, and that's reforming the nation. John Wesley and the early Methodists were advocates. Um, They spoke out and spoke for people uh, whose voices were minimized or silenced in the society and in the church. Um, Advocacy is one of uh, the ministries, one of the means by which we reform the nation because uh, we keep before the nation the needs of people uh, who would otherwise be forgotten. Advocacy is a very important thing. But he moved further into the reformation of the nation through what I have called vocational influence. I began to see this uh, as I read his tracts, his his um, uh, words. He would sometimes call them words to a magistrate, words to a ship captain, words to a farmer. Wesley believed, uh, as the words of the covenant service put it, Christ has many services to be done. Wesley believed uh, that God calls people 
to all of these varieties of service. But then, when we, when we become homemakers and truck drivers and teachers and coaches, uh, when we become business persons, when we become lawyers, when, when we uh, become uh, day laborers, every, every vocation was sacred for the Wesleys. Once, you, once you're in that place, you see, then you understand that place to be one of mission and service. It's vocational. God has called you to be where you are. And so you use that place as a, as a place to stand and to do ministry in the name of Jesus. I've shared this story on other occasions, but I'll do it again today. I was uh, talking to a men's group uh, in, in, uh, in a church uh, one evening. Uh, it uh, was an Episcopal church in the city of Orlando. And when I finished what I had come to talk with them about, I was gathering up my stuff, and I noticed that one man was staying behind. And I just assumed, you know, that he was responsible for turning out the lights and locking the doors, and he, he, he was the designated closer, so I, I didn't want to hold him up, so I gathered my stuff and started heading for the exit, and I noticed he was following me. I realized that he wasn't the closer. He, he was one of the men who had come to the meeting. And as we walked out uh, to the parking lot, he engaged me in a conversation in which he told me that uh, he'd been a member of that particular church all of his life. He was confirmed there around the age of 12. Uh, let's just say uh, that he was 52. Uh, so to keep the math simple, that he'd been in that church 40 years. Uh, and he told me that uh, he was a practicing lawyer in the city and had been part of a law firm for something like 25 or so years. Um, and then he said words which uh, moved him and me. He said, tomorrow I'm going to go to practice law as a disciple of Jesus because of what you shared with us tonight. Now, I didn't say how in the world could you go so long and not make that connection because he, he, he was deeply moved by whatever it was that he'd experienced at the men's group that night. He said, tomorrow morning I'm going for the first time to practice law as a disciple of Jesus. Now folks, that's, that's spiritual formation in the Wesleyan tradition. I'm going to plow my field in the name of Jesus. I'm going to be a homemaker in the name of Jesus. I'm going to be a neighbor in the name of Jesus. That's, that's the means of reforming the nation as we're scattered all over the place, literally all over the earth to live our lives in ways that glorify God and help other people. So what are we seeing in this episode when we talk about living the faith and the means for doing it? We're, we're seeing that John Wesley in the early Methodist movement was an ethic of life. The Wesleys understood Methodism as life-giving to people, to the church, to the nation. That's the same kind of ethic that we want to promote today in United Methodism. It's the same kind of ethic that we want to advance in the UM's Connected Movement. We want to commend this way of living. So we've been looking at the formative flow, belonging, believing, behaving. Season one 
of the UM's Connected podcast has been all about this as we've spent one round of episodes entitled Connecting. That's the belonging phase. And then we call the second one Believing because we couldn't think of any better word than to say Believing. And we focused our great beliefs in part three of the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church. And so now here we are in behaving, in living our faith, through vision, intention, and means. There's one more element that uh, sort of wraps its way around all three of these things, and it's what I would call becoming. I'm not going to do another series on this dimension, though I'm sure we'll come back to it. It's John Wesley's Theology of Sanctification. It's his phrase, go on to perfection. Now, if we ever do deal with sanctification, we'll have to honestly acknowledge that perfection is a confusing word uh, in the Wesleyan theological uh, field of study. Uh, But it it was a word that uh, was very meaningful in Wesley's day, and it it just basically means don't stop. Don't stop growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what we're saying in this belonging, believing, behaving season one of UM's uh, Connected Podcast, is that we never arrive. We're ever becoming. Uh, We're on the potter's wheel, and God, uh, the potter, is shaping us. Uh, We press on. That was the intent of Jesus in his offering of abundant life to the disciples. That was the the vision of the early Christians uh, that that day after day after day, we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This was the vision of Wesley and the early Methodists. It's the vision of the United Methodist Church today that we will be belongers, believers, and behaviors, that we will connect, have faith, and live that faith. This is who we are. This is the formative flow And it's where I wanted to begin with you in this first season of the podcast. Next week, I'm going to focus our attention on some specific resources as to how we can do that right now in the 21st century. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank you for listening. Tune in next week as we continue our journey together. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions or want to share any insights that you're picking up through this podcast. My email is umsconnected at flumc.org. Tell others about UM's Connected Movement. Point them to the website where they can find out not only the basics of the movement, but they can find out what's currently going on so that we can grow this movement and more and more people can become part of it.